We are glad to be together uh, to worship God in this uh, this unusual, unusual year. And it is the start uh, of the school year uh, here in the, the Fort Mill uh, School District. And one of our uh, traditions has been to take just a moment uh, in our worship gatherings, uh, whether those are online or on campus now, uh, to, to spend a few moments just praying. Uh, praying for the school year, and we, we do that all the time, but uh, this is just going to be a different year. Uh, it's going to be a different start and different uh, um, uh, systems and uh, A-B days and all those other things and uh, parents uh, trying to uh, partner uh, more perhaps intentionally and intensely than, than before uh, through home, and so uh, uh, Wow. It's going to be a year, isn't it? It's going to be a start to a year. But God's got this. Uh, and, and so we just want to cry out to him uh, together in prayer. So would you just uh, join me for just a moment before we dig into uh, the word to uh, spend some time praying. Let's pray. Oh, Father, <laughs> this is not the year we thought it was going to be. This is not the start uh, of a school year that we would have imagined. But Father, we come and acknowledge that nothing that has happened this year, nothing that will happen has taken you by surprise. And so Father, we don't have to inform you. We just come and lay our lives and a start of a brand new academic year before your throne. And Father, we pray with the confidence that you are the God who is at work in all things, and you can cause even, even difficult things, even challenging things, even painful things to work together for good to those who love you and are called according to your purpose. And so, Father, we cry out for this academic year. We cry out with gratitude because uh, our church family is filled with uh, teachers, uh, administrators, coaches, uh, support staff, uh, and we thank you for them. We thank you for their influence. Uh, in the lives of children and students and families. And Father, we pray that even in this most unusual year, that the light of Jesus Christ would shine through them ever more brightly. Father, we pray for, for their strength, for their uh, patience, for their peace, for their wisdom, for their creativity in this most unusual year. Father, just guide them as they shepherd and steward this incredible role and incredible calling to invest in the lives of the next generation. Father, we just thank you for them. We pray for students who are going back, and Father, we pray that you would calm fears. We pray, Father, that you would, uh, Lord, help them to adjust to uh, the things that are just going to be different. We pray that you would give them focus in their studies. We pray, Father, that you would, uh, Lord, call out even those extracurricular things that might be different now. And Lord, would you use all of them uh, to help shape them into the, the young man, the young woman that you have designed, created, and called them to be. 
And Father, we pray for just uh, uh, the protection of homes. We pray for parents. We pray for their investment. Uh, Very different looking uh, this year in this process. Lord, would you just grant great wisdom to families trying to juggle work and school and new schedules and and child care and all of those things. And Father, we we just ask for your your hand to be upon parents as they invest in this school year. And Lord, we certainly pray for protection. Just the normal protection, uh, in some sense, we pray for year after year because we know that it's just a crazy world where sin manifests itself in some startling, ugly ways. And Father, we pray for protection from violence. We pray for protection from disease. And we pray for, for wisdom. And we pray for a safe environment where people can grow and develop. And Father, I don't know all that you purpose to do, but we look to you and we trust in you and we anticipate you working mightily through this academic year. Father, we lift our families, our our church family, our community to you now. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. Hey, thank you for taking a few moments to, to be a part of that. We are going to jump back into John's gospel, uh, the second chapter, those first 11 verses. And while you're finding that, I'll, I'll ch- share with you an old story. Police officer noticed a car was driving a little erratically. And so he pulled the, pulled the driver over and he stepped up. And of course, the window came down and the driver was quite, quite conversant, would talk with him and didn't seem to be scared at all. And uh, uh, of course, he asked for the driver's license and all those things that you normally do. And, and uh, the uh, officer said, well, well, sir, have you been drinking? And he said, well, no, 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 not at all. He said, well, sir, I, I see the, the, a bottle there in your seat. What's in that? He said, oh, that's just water. That's just water. I mean, you got to keep hydrated. It's very important. And the officer said, well, do you mind if I uh, take a look at that bottle? Sure, no problem, no problem. He handed him the container and the officer took kind of a quick whiff of it and he said, sir, that's not water, that's wine. The guy driving said, praise God, he's done it again. He turned water into wine, right? I don't know if that defense will hold up in court. I don't know if we'll try that. But this is what I do know. The first miracle that John chose to record in his gospel, and he was very selective of which ones he chose to record, was at a small, obscure wedding in a no-name town, and only a handful of people actually ever were aware of it, that it took place. But in transforming water into wine at this wedding, Jesus communicated some very powerful things. See, when John records a miracle of Jesus, he doesn't use the word miracle. He talks about a sign. This is the first sign. A sign was, was pointed beyond itself. It wasn't just about the, the, the physical miracle, but it was something to display. It was a sign pointing beyond itself to display God's glory. And it also today even demonstrates God's power to work in our lives today. And so as we, we encounter various miracles through John's gospel, just always know it's not just about the miracle, the event, the physical event itself, but it is 
a sign. It is pointing to some deeper reality, some deeper meaning beyond that. And so we just want to dive into chapter 2, and let's, let's start by making sure we kind of understand the setting. Now, verse 1, on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. Now, it seems pretty straightforward, but again, there are some cultural differences. The weddings of this culture would have been very, very different than the weddings that most of us would be familiar with to this day. Uh, they, They would have been perhaps arranged by the parents. And a contract would have been prepared. And vows would have been spoken, perhaps in a synagogue in in a local community. And and tokens would have been exchanged. And then the man and the woman would return to their respective homes. And this was the betrothal period. They were considered legally married, uh, but they weren't yet together. And so there were preparations, particularly the husband, the, the groom, was making preparations. And this betrothal period could last from two months to uh, up as long as a year. And then came the appointed time, and the the groom would uh, take to the street with his friends. And if you remember some of the other uh, parables and the teachings of Jesus, oftentimes this procession took place at night in a torch-lit procession from his home to the bride's, a grand parade with with, uh, pomp and color and singing and celebration. And after speeches of goodwill and blessings pronounced over the couple, the groom would take his bride to their new home where family and friends would feast. And this wouldn't just be a a meal or a a couple of hour uh, reception with cake and and, uh, finger foods, but this would would have been a feast. This would have been something that would have gone along uh, perhaps as long as a week. And here's the catch. The groom and the groom's family was expected to provide enough food and drink for everyone. Now, as, as a dad of a daughter, I'm not sure where that got twisted up. <laughs> I don't know how that changed that the bride's family uh, got to carry all that. But, but that wasn't the tradition here. And so uh, it, would have been, it would have been a major kind of a social crisis if you didn't have enough for the feast. Now, before we move on to understand kind of the problem and the provision, I do want you to see one thing, and that is Jesus really does want to be involved in all aspects of your life. I mean, he was invited to the wedding. Invite him into every aspect of your life. The school, your training, your your career, your marriage, your parenting, your family, your hobbies, your money. Uh, He is Lord of all, and he is to be invited into every situation, every circumstance, every facet and aspect of our life. He wants to be that involved. So that's the setting. But then there is this problem. There's this problem, and Mary brings it to Jesus' attention with a request. Uh, When the wine ran out, they're running out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no Wine. The implication is Jesus fix this. Jesus do something about this. And then Jesus responds, perhaps not the way we would anticipate, because Jesus at this point is instructing. He is 
teaching. He is saying something very specific to Mary. Verse four, and Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, there's a lot there, and so let's unpack that because there's three phrases that need explanation because the language and the culture is foreign and could certainly lead to a misinterpretation. The first one is he addresses her as woman. Okay, time out. Husbands, sons, don't try that. <laughs> Do not try this at home. Okay, it doesn't work well in English. All right, uh, don't, don't try it at home. Uh, but it, it, it sounds kind of harsh to us, but it, in the first century Galilee, it would have been a formal address. It would have been kind of like addressing a woman as ma'am. In fact, is if you would fast forward toward the end of the gospel, Jesus hanging on the cross sees his mother and he uses that same terminology woman. And so he wasn't, wasn't being rude, but he was being abrupt. He was being purposeful. He was communicating something. Mary, our relationship has changed. No longer am I going to relate to you as the son that you raised in Nazareth. But now, as this public ministry has unfolded, I am relating to you as the Messiah, no longer as your son. I am operating as the son of God. And then he says, what does this have to do with us? The Greek uh, behind this phrase is a Semitic expression. What to me and to you, literally. What to me and to you. It can be a sharp rebuke. You see that in the Old Testament. Or it can be a, a gentle request. Jesus is kind of saying, uh, why, why are you inviting me to be involved in this? And his explanation for that comes in that very next phrase. My hour has not yet come. Throughout the Gospels, he makes a lot of references to his hour or his time. Five times in, in John's gospel, he'll say, my time has not yet come. The hour has not yet come. Three times he declares the time has come. And these are expressions that always reference the time of his glorification, kind of the, the, the ultimate revealing of who he is. Now let's put, the, put all those together, all those phrases together. Mary, think about it. Mary knew before anybody else who Jesus was. For decades, she and Joseph, as long as he lived, endured ridicule, shame, scorn, sideways glances because of a misunderstanding around the conception of Jesus during her betrothal. And now, she has waited now decades to be able to share this secret. And she sees Jesus and she sees this small group of disciples that he has now gathered to himself and, and she begins to, to long for that revelation and, and part of that, that request is this present crisis seems like the perfect opportunity for you to burst onto the political scene, to tell people who you are, to stir people to action, to begin the campaign to reclaim the throne of David. It's a struggle that you'll find throughout the gospel. 
that those who accepted Jesus as Christ were correct to anticipate the promised king would receive God's glory and then bring glory to the nation as Isaiah 60 and so many other passages talk about. But just how that was gonna happen was poorly understood by everyone but Jesus. And these conflicting expectations of what the Messiah would do and when the Messiah would do it, you see time and time again throughout John's gospel. This is just one of the first incident. Just days after the baptisms of John, of John the baptizer officially recognizing Christ and his identity. And you see this tension, this misunderstanding throughout the gospels. So what Jesus is saying here is that her expectation of what the Messiah would be and his fulfillment would be two entirely different things. In these words that perhaps don't make total sense to us, he was clarifying some things. The Messiah's glory would come, but it would come not as a power move at first, but it would come at the expense of his death. It would come not as a, a, a result of, of a display of power, but of obedience unto the cross. His glory would come primarily from God and not from man. And thirdly, that that glory, the revelation of that glory would take place on the Father's timetable and not everybody else's. And so in sense, in this moment, he reminds Mary he knows his destiny and he knows who's in charge and is not his mother. And she gets it because you see in the very next verse, she submits, she submits. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. <laughs> whatever he tells you. I've laid it out there, whatever he tells you. She had come to that point that she knew she knew that she could trust Jesus to do what is right. Can we take a sidebar for just a moment? Some of you are crying out for God. In fact, is you, you kind of your prayer is sometimes like telling God, right? God, this is what you ought to do. This is how you ought to do it, and this is when you ought to do it. We have to come to the point that Mary came to. We can cry out to God. But in the end, we trust that he'll do what's right. He'll do what's best, even if it is different from my expectations and my timing. She submits, trusting that he will do what is right. And then we find that uh, he turns to his provision. How is he going to provide in this moment? And this is the, the sign that begins to unfold. Verse six tells us that there were six jars. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Now, now pause for a moment on these jars. Uh, what did they hold? Lots 
and lots of water. And you think, wow, Jeff, that's profound. Did you study a long time for that, right? I mean, we're talking about 120 to 180 gallons of water. And one of the things that this even pictures for us is when God provides, God provides abundantly. God provides lavishly. God is able to provide exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we can ask, think, or even begin to imagine along the way. They held lots of water, but the water wasn't for drinking. What these jars were used for was ceremonial washing. It was the, the, the washing of the heads and the arms, and, uh, the ceremonial washing that would have taken place. And this is very important. It's not insignificant. Jesus was saying by selecting those jars, that water, he was saying that he was making a transformation. He was going to replace external religious ceremony with real internal transformation. In just this moment, he's acting out a parable. Think about it. When Jesus later gives a symbol of his shed blood, the shed blood that is going to usher in a new covenant and to remind us of that shed blood, he gives us the cup. He gives us wine. And in this moment, he chooses intentionally to take these jars, ceremonial washing, and symbolically replace it With that, it's going to be his shed blood. That there will be only one way to be clean before a holy God. There will only be one provision for purification. And that will be through the life and the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And from the beginning, the first sign pointing beyond itself. He is saying, read the sign carefully because it means so much more. But also notice these jars were made of. They were made of very common materials. And that ought to encourage us. Jesus uses the ordinary as conduits of the extraordinary that he desires to do in us and through us. Sometimes we think, well, God, God only works through superstars. God only works through people who are so incredibly gifted or have a, great resources or whatever it might be. No, 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 no. God does some of his best work in some places that nobody knows. <laughs> the spotlight doesn't shine brightly because he uses ordinary people as conduits of his love and truth and grace and power to do things in them and through them that are extraordinary. And so there are these six jars of water. And Jesus gives instructions to the servants. Verse seven, Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. Now, now pause again. When you understand when God begins to move, he very often chooses to involve ordinary people like you and I. He involves us in doing something ordinary as part of his doing something extraordinary. And I mean, it's, it's not like 
Well, it's very miraculous. They filled the jars up with water. <laughs> That's an ordinary thing. But God very often, very often involves us in what he's doing in the world. And he says, if you will do the ordinary in obedience to me, I will do the extraordinary. I will do the extraordinary. Do whatever he tells you to do, Harry said. He just told us to fill up the jars with water. How hard was that? But they did it. And notice what the scripture says about how they did it. They filled them up to the brim. Can I just challenge you and challenge me? Whatever God calls you to do, even if it seems so ordinary, do it to the max. Fill it up to the brim. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all of your might, with all of your strength. Do it to the glory of God. Because it's in the ordinary, done to the Lord, that becomes conduits for the extraordinary. There's one other point here. At this point, there's just a few folks that even know Jesus is involved. In fact is, there's not gonna be a lot of folks. It's not like Jesus said, okay, hey, woo, woo, excuse me, everybody gather around. <laughs> Want you to see this? This is really cool. <laughs> uh-uh. Because God is powerful, but he is not showy. <laughs> I'm afraid sometimes in our culture, and I'm afraid sometimes even in our churches, we are more impressed with showy. God is powerful. He's powerful. <laughs> when you're powerful, you don't have to flaunt it, right? He's powerful, but he's not showy. Don't, don't be distracted by the showy because God's power often works in those hidden moments, in those corners of the world that nobody perhaps gives a lot of attention to. It may not make headline news, but God is at work. And so he takes this to the master of the, the feast and he tastes the water that's now become wine. And he did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. And the master of the feast called the bridegroom. And he said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. But when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Now, let me do, do a quick word about the wine, because sometimes folks have questions about this. Well, this, you know, what, this, what kind of was this? Jesus giving alcoholic beverages and all of these things? Well, well, quick word. First of all, it was a different drink. And secondly, it was a different culture. A different drink, a different culture. So I won't spend a lot of time here. I've talked about this in some other messages. You can go check it out. Uh, but the reality is, yes, the, the, wine, the wine of that day was fermented wine. I mean, without refrigeration, without preservatives, uh, that wine would ferment, and sometimes it would ferment pretty quickly, right? In fact, it's the scripture, the Old Testament scripture and the New Testament, they're filled with admonitions against drunkenness, Right? Uh, that wouldn't be a problem if there wasn't the accessibility uh, of this. And because of that, 
uh, very often the Jewish folks, that there were, you can go to the Jewish writings, even instructions about how to prepare for the Passover meal and that sort of thing. And there are specific instructions about how to prepare the wine. And very often they would take the wine and they would add one, three, sometimes 10 parts water to it. Uh, one, it kind of stretched it out, uh, uh, but it also, uh, also kind of helped knock off some of the, uh, the intoxicating uh, effects of it along the way. But it was also a different culture, a different culture. They, they didn't have a lot of safe drinking options. In fact, is if you remember, Paul at one point writes to Timothy, and he says to Timothy, take a little wine for your stomach. Uh, it, it sometimes was just about health and, and what to drink that was going to be healthy for you. They also wouldn't have had uh, opportunity to have any of the distilled liquors and that sort of thing because the distilling process didn't happen until centuries later. So, so Jeff, what, what are you saying? What are you saying with all this? So somebody says, well, well, Jesus drank wine. Is it okay for me? I don't think you can make a case, and I know I'm in a Baptist church, all right? I, I, I don't think you can say biblically that never drinking an alcoholic beverage is the model of Scripture. Now, as I've taught before, I think there are some wisdom issues that might make that a, a very wise and viable option for folks, but I've never made it a point of fellowship personally. So, I mean, I choose not to, and I've, I've taught on some of the reasons why. Uh, we have lots of other options, uh, uh, but uh, I've, never, I've never broke fellowship over. So I've had plenty of meals where somebody else was drinking a, a glass of wine or they were having uh, some other alcoholic beverage, and I didn't pound the table and say, don't stay at the Lord. <laughs> you know, I just... I didn't want them driving necessarily, but, uh, but, uh, uh, but yeah. So, I, again, and I know, I, I know that may be a little, so go back if you're interested to dive deeper on this. Uh, go back and, and look online on some of the sermons we've done on, on the, the, the whole question of, of alcohol here. But just felt like it, we needed to take a little side trip there uh, just to talk about that. And I think I've probably handled that in such a way that I have offended a whole everybody. So I'll move on. Uh, but a quick observation. The water has been turned into wine. And wine, particularly in that day, was a symbol of joy. It was, it was a gift of God. It was something to be celebrated. And no, notice what, what this man says. It's very insightful. He says, everyone serves the good wine first. Then when people have drunk freely, then they whip out the poor wine. But you... You have kept the good wine until now. Here's the thing. Joy and fulfillment sought apart from God over time always diminishes and sometimes just disappears. And some of you know this. You know this. You, 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 you got that toy. You got that thing. You made that trip. You, you did all these things. You thought, whoa, this is so great. Right? You watch it in your children, right? I gotta have that toy. I need that toy. And then you get that toy and they're so excited for a couple of days. And then they lose a piece. <laughs> or something gets broke. Or they just don't wanna play with it anymore. Because anything that I seek joy in apart from God 
my joy and fulfillment is gonna diminish over time and oftentimes just disappears. And what this steward is saying without even knowing he's saying it, God-given joy and fulfillment get better and better over time. And that's one of the things that's been so encouraging to me through the years is just to look at some older saints, some men and women of God who have walked with the Lord. Some of them have gone through some horrible times and some hard times and some struggling times. Some have been blessed materially and health and other ways all across the spectrum, but but the ones who truly know the Lord, they radiate a joy, a joy that is not dependent on their circumstances because they've learned whatever the world can offer, the joy and the fulfillment and that will diminish over time. But in Christ Jesus, the joy and the fulfillment get better and better and better over time. So verse 11, kind of in a, in a summation. This is the first of his signs. Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory because the sign is always about something far beyond just the physical act. And his disciples believed in him. It was a miracle. It was a miracle of creation. He, he, he created wine instantaneously out of water. And it's a reminder that Jesus is the creator. He is the one who has creation power. But it was also a miracle of transformation. It was a miracle of transformation as water was transformed into wine. And it reminds me of the fact that God is still in the business of transforming things. Jesus Jesus is still in the business of transforming things. Uh, a fellow who had had a very rough past had come to Christ, and Christ had radically changed his life. And one of his buddies asked him, he said, he said, hey, 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 do you really believe that Jesus turned water into wine? And the guy thought for a few moments. He said, well, I don't know about all that. But this is what I know. Jesus turned alcohol into a house and to furniture and to food. And Jesus turned drugs into a wife, into children, into a family. Because I was spending everything in my life was consumed with all of those things before I met Jesus. When I met Jesus, he changed everything. He changed the alcohol and the drugs into a family, into a home, into a blessing. Because Jesus Christ is still in the business of transforming things. And I don't know where you're at today, but I just want to encourage you. Jesus Christ is still in the business of transforming things. He is still in the business of doing the extraordinary through people who will walk with him in the ordinary. But notice, if you will, kind of four different responses to this miracle because I think they're manifest in our lives today. The first was Mary invited 
the miracle. She invited the miracle. We can call this intercession. She just came to Jesus and she asked, Jesus, you need to do something. Please do something. And you and I still have that opportunity today. We can cry out to God. We can ask God. We can pray for ourselves. We can pray on behalf of other people. And like Mary, we may not even fully understand everything that we're asking, but we can say, hey, do whatever he tells you to do. Jesus, I trust that you're gonna handle this right. I love the way that one person put it. He said, believe in miracles, but trust in Jesus. Believe in miracles, absolutely. But trust in Jesus. Whether he brings about the miracle that you want in the moment you want it or not. She invited the miracle through intercession. The servants participated in the miracle through obedience, through obedience. And it could be that for some of us, we are one step of obedience away from seeing God move in a very powerful way. We're one simple act of obedience. It's simple, but it's scary. It's simple, but it's, it, it seems overwhelming. It's simple, but it feels like, oh, it's gonna cost me so much. But we might be one simple step of obedience away from seeing God move in an extraordinary, even miraculous way. They participated in the miracle through their obedience. But the steward, and honestly, all the guests, they enjoyed the miracle. They enjoyed the wine, which is actually better than what they had at first, but they were oblivious. They were oblivious to its source. And there are a lot of folks that are walking around experiencing the blessing of God. They're just oblivious. <laughs> they may have gotten out in creation and, and, and even gone outside more than they usually do during this COVID stuff, right? And they, they may awe at a sunrise or a sunset or, or the sound of nature or the smell of the woods or whatever it may be, the sound of a waterfall. They're oblivious to the source of all of that. They have blessing after blessing in their life and oblivious to the fact that it is God who is the author, the giver of every good and perfect gift. And sometimes if we're not careful in our busyness, we can become oblivious to the activity of God among us and around us. They enjoy it. They were oblivious to who it was from and what it really meant. And then there were the disciples. The disciples believed in not just the miracle, but they believed in the miracle worker. And his disciples believed in him because the sign pointed beyond the physical manifestation of water to wine. It pointed to the one who made that possible, who Jesus Christ really was. When we cry out for God to move, when we ask God for a miracle, it's not just for this thing, but it is for God to be honored and God to be magnified and God to be glorified and God to draw people to himself. And so I close with a challenge. Sometimes, sometimes you and I can miss the joy because we're looking for it in all the wrong places. 
I'm old enough to remember there was an old country song that said, looking for love in all the wrong places. (laughs) Some of us are looking for joy in all the wrong places. I think that's one of the reasons why, and please, I'm I'm not judging, I'm not trying to diminish the struggle, but I think that's one of the reasons why we're having so much, we're seeing so much evidence now of, of great mental struggle and, and depression and everything else through what we're going through. Because I think we've gotten so connected to other things as our source, source of joy, our source of fulfillment, our source of meaning and purpose and happiness. And suddenly it's without. See, here's the thing, my friends. If you look for that joy in anything and in anyone other than Jesus Christ, you will ultimately be disappointed. It is only, only in a living, personal, growing relationship with Jesus Christ that you can experience a joy that transforms and it soars above any challenge, any problem, any obstacle that God may send our way. Read the sign carefully. It wasn't just about providing beverages at a wedding. It was pointing to the author of all joy, the one who makes possible reconciliation with God, Jesus Christ. Let's pray to him together. Father, I do ask, Lord, would you, would you just speak to us through, perhaps for some of us, a very familiar words. Lord, would you quicken it to our hearts and lives, Father? Would you even now stir in us a, a longing for, for joy, a longing for meaning and purpose that can't be found in the world, but can only be found in you. Father, I pray that even today, you might in these moments just draw someone to a saving relationship with you, that today would be the day that they would, would come and place their faith and trust, and trusting past, present, and future to the finished, completed work of Jesus Christ. Father, thank you that you are still in the business of transformation. You're still in the business of creating. You are still in the business of changing lives. Father, change us and then use us for your glory. We ask together in Christ Jesus' name, amen.